welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving. And just a few preliminary thoughts before we get into the conversation with Fred Provenza, who is um, a return guest on the podcast, as you're probably aware. Um, so Fred and I end up mainly talking about issues around livestock and meat this week. And, you know, I'm aware that's quite controversial, um, particularly as there's such a strong movement towards plant-based food. And, and um, I guess the conversation ends up actually challenging that trajectory to a certain extent. So, um, yeah, I, want, I wanted to just give some preliminary thoughts around that because, um, yeah, I mean, our situa- it, it, does seem, it does seem quite, uh, you know, a complex situation that we find ourselves in with um, there being that kind of emphasis because not least to say, Joel Saunders, who edits the podcast, who, who uh, um, you may have looked at the the blogs that Joel's done that are on our website, and Joel's a you know fantastic guy. But now Joel's a vegan, um, and also we have um, have had some lovely lovely folk working with us who also coming from a um, a very committed vegan perspective. So you know you might you might think from hearing this this conversation that um, there's some kind of entrenched sort of non-sympathetic position. Um, whereas in actual fact, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the plant-based position from the, from the, yeah, I guess the, the, the strong point of overlap that we have firstly with looking at plants as, as a primary source of food. So, you know, Fred himself in, in, in the book nourishment, he makes this statement that plants are the founders of the feast. So they are the primary producers of, sugar and carbohydrates and many of the um the uh phytonutrients that we're, we're actually talking about in this and the other conversation with fred um they're just not available any other way but from eating plants so we and other animals get those nutrients only because plants are producing them so the idea that a food system should then um take a strong move back towards the, the you know the primary source of foods rather than um, eating them in a secondary way where we where we eat animals certainly I can see that that's um, makes perfect sense with what we have been doing for the past 16 years as a supplier of plants mushrooms and seaweeds to high-end restaurants I guess we've been doing nothing else but laying the foundation for for plant-based food and plant-based cooking and plant-based culture I guess the only thing is that the the the, the where we part company from the um, the sort of mainstream vegan position is the idea that killing and eating an animal is is fundamentally wrong. And um, uh, I guess the great thing is with the conversations that I've had with Joel and with um, our good friends that, that worked for us a while for a while, um, we um, managed to find you know, respect for one another's position in that. And I guess what's coming up now is is um, an issue around there being, you know, the, the, a lack of that that dialogue and respect for um, opposite viewpoints, you know. I mean, I certainly feel that anything that is grounded in compassion, as the vegan position is, um, I certainly can't say that. I think that that, that is um, anything but worth well, taking on board, really, like the, the, the idea that we should not take lightly the taking of another animal's life in order to sustain our own. 
again, I think that's that is, I mean, that is probably point number two for what I think the plant based thing or the vegan thing um, brings to the table is it means that we're, we're being forced, you know, us carnivores or omnivores are being forced to, um, to, to be conscious, you know, that this isn't just stuff that we're ingesting. It's, um, it is the body of another animal. However, I just don't reach the same conclusion as, as vegans do. Having, having myself become a vegetarian when I was age six till age 16, certainly never a vegan, but like I was moved at the age of six to, to want to stop eating meat because I heard, um, about what happened in abattoirs and I just, just thought it was so cruel and mean and I'm, and I just didn't want to eat meat and, and I stuck to that for 10 years. But, um, having returned to eating meat, um, so where I draw the line is that I don't think it's an absolute, uh, moral wrong to, to be taking the life of the animal that we end up eating as meat because for me, it's part of the ecosystem. It's part of the way of, um, how biology works, you know, that, that, organisms eat other organisms and you know i know the the um the vegan position is that we are in a, in a position to rise above biology and, and and take a moral ethical stand but nevertheless i feel that the um the relationship which was in place with indigenous cultures and even with animal husbandry um where it's where it's done um as well as it can be done that there is a reverence there is a um a sharing of life between us and other animals, which which I think is overall um, creates more benefits. It's it's just um, well, it's as simple as that. We end up we end up at our moral positions because we you know we put everything all together and and, and reach a conclusion, and uh, that's the conclusion I've reached. So um, I just want to add this preamble just to maybe help um, make the whole thing a bit more um, well palatable to to vegans perhaps because we don't want to lose anyone in these conversations um just by way of being able to understand um well my position and i just it's going to be interesting to i haven't even talked to joel about this yet and and joel will be editing this and it will be going out but we may um maybe need um to kind of do what i mentioned in the podcast which is have some sort of exchange um with people that feel very strongly from the vegan perspective that i've um tried to represent but obviously you know it should should perhaps have have someone that holds that perspective represent it themselves whether, whether that's joel or someone that we invite on the podcast we'll we'll um we'll we'll look into that so anyway um that's one thing um i apologize if this introduction is quite long but uh the other thing i wanted to mention is uh in light of what what fred is saying with with not looking for a magic bullet for health benefiting compounds you know that that we that we want to eat that will solve everything just single single compounds extracted from plants or whatever um but that actually what we need is this complexity and this diverse array of beneficial nutrients uh, that's what's going to really make our bodies flourish absolute position that um that i've described there so in light of that i did want to share something um that i'm beginning to make more of a regular practice um so when it comes to wild foods i am most well uh, versed really in, in, in terms of, of wild foods and meals or dishes that you can produce. I'm really a salad man. Um, best of all, you know, I, because, and that's because I make salads so often I try and make that, you know, a wild salad every day and have that with um, an evening meal and, and, and have a bit left over that can be fermented. And, and that's a regular thing, but this train of thought about, you know, how complex our own, 
um, physiology is and how we benefit from a vast array of plant-based chemicals that come in when we have a diet that's full of diversity and has many plants and especially many plants um, from the wild. So the point being that the plants from the wild have each each one has a diverse array and, and, and is very potent with uh, bioactive compounds. And so the idea of having many wild plants means that you are really having a, an incredible cocktail of um, bioactive compounds, which in themselves have amazing interactions within you know that particular leaf that particular stem or flower or other other plant part that you're using there's a there's a there's an interaction of lots of um bioactive compounds that's beneficial to our uh, our bodies when we eat them but the idea that you're you're allowing that there's a potential interaction between all of the different cocktails of compounds are found in the different plants when you put many plants together in one meal um, which is what grazing animals do. They go around and they basically have a salad, but instead of mixing it together, they eat one by one. They go around and eat a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And Fred's work goes into a lot of depth around that in, in, the, um, in the book Nourishment. So anyway, where that ends up for me is to go out and harvest small amounts of as many different plants as I can and make a salad. And it's... Um, it's just such a lot of fun to do that, and the kids get, well, especially my little boy, he gets gets quite excited about it. Um, I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, I'm not sure, but anyway. Uh, so we go out, and, and maybe we'll just get up to 15. That's quite a small number, because it is possible to get up to 50 or 60. But the point is, we end up with a salad that has many plants in, and those many plants with the many um, bioactive compounds in them, and we get back and make a salad and, and, and eat that. And um, I'm just struck by the fact that this is a, this is a really um, wonderful way to put into practice what Fred is is, um, is articulating so clearly, and um, other people are kind of coming together, like the uh, the chap from the conference that he goes on to mention, whose whose paper we'll attach to the show notes. Um, that this idea of a many th- a salad of many things. Is, is a fantastic way to um, just engage with the uh, the uh, diversity of health-giving c- chemicals which are being produced by the wild landscape. It's a way of, of getting that inside us and, and participating with that complexity and diversity, this chemical uh, complexity and diversity of, of, of our landscapes. So um, I'm really excited about that, and uh, that's, that's a kind of perhaps a bit of a tease to any of you listening to this that, that – uh, are only just beginning a, a edible wild plant journey, but I just want to encourage you. Like the uh, walk of a thousand miles starts with one step, as they say. And um, if you can just get out and and um, engage with one plant, just one plant, and make that a part of your diet, and chop a little bit into a salad, put it in a sandwich, um, like dandelions, for example, or like nettles, you can um, you can go on our website. There's there's the, follow the link to the to our YouTube page. There's a thing for the simplest nettle soup in the world. There's also a thing for a simple dandelion salad, and there's lots of other material out there. The thing is, just if you can come to the point where you recognise just one or two plants and you use them on a regular basis, it's it's so easy then to just add um, another plant every once in a while, and you'd soon get to the point where you know many. But the thing is. With that in mind, um, do check out the uh, Association of Forager website and and look out for courses in your area. Anyone that's in London or Kent, 
Um, we're about to release details of, of some more courses um, for November and, and then shortly after for next year. So you could come down and, and, um, and learn in that way. So, yeah, I guess this all ties together to being to being about plant based based diets and the idea that the plant based diet is all the better if it's many, many, many plants. And I don't know a better way of doing that than to learn the edible wild plants in the landscape. OK, so we'll, we'll get on to the, the conversation with Fred now. Um, I'm really trying to stick to what I've said and and do this as a conversation rather than um, a, a structured interview. Um, and I'm still getting the hang of that. How do we how do we work our way into it when we're not saying we're not pretending to say hello? Because, you know, obviously when I make a podcast, I'm calling somebody up, saying hello, and then we pretend to be starting again when we do the podcast. But I'm trying to get rid of that. Um, so you'll see it's a little clumsy how we start with Fred this time because um, I'm still working on that. But I hope um, that the the sense that this is this is um, a real conversation um, and not something that's constructed for the purpose of a of a broadcast is going to come through. So yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll get onto that now, um, clumsy or not. Um, the last week in August and the first week in September, I participated in a conference in Innsbruck, Austria. And the name of the conference, or the, the group, was it was the 67th annual meeting of the Society for Research on Medicinal Plants and Natural Products. It was a fabulous gathering of, of folks, all devoted to that. And until I was contacted by those folks uh, about half a year ago, ago or so to to come to that conference, I, I, I really wasn't aware of that group, which which is kind of uh, my own shortcoming actually, but it was amazing to, to go there and to participate with this large group of people actually, um, for primarily I would say from, from Europe, but many people from South America, Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Unfortunately, the U.S. was least represented, actually, a few of us, but, you know, it hasn't caught on as much here, Miles. Uh, so far as I can see, visiting with um, people who who should and would maybe be involved with societies like that. But um, they're going to have their annual meeting next year in San Francisco, so that's an opportunity for people here in the U.S. to to learn about that group and hopefully get a good participation. They asked me to give two talks there. One, um, and they suggested the title actually for this one, they really wanted me to talk about this topic of after 10,000 years of domestication, can livestock still self-medicate? So that was a lot of fun to, to uh, prepare and give a talk about that, which we did a lot of work on over the years. The other one that I wanted to talk about that they uh, graciously encouraged me to do was based on the paper that we published uh, in March, the end of March in the journal Frontiers in Nutrition. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. so the title of that talk was Let Feed and Food Be Our Medicine. And it was a great chance to talk about the linkages from soil and plants through herbivores and human beings and how plant diversity uh, is such a vital part of that. And then this whole area of you know, phytochemical diversity and complexity and how that, how that 
the importance of that for health below ground and above ground as well. So that was really a lot of fun to to speak about that there. And it was they both talks were really well received and I think got people thinking about linkages that we maybe don't think in, in so much detail about related to plant diversity, uh, phytochemistry, and what that does, some of the research that's being done now showing how uh, diversity of plants leads to much healthier soils in terms of stimulating much more life in those soils. Uh, but the same thing's true above ground as well. Yeah, so there's, there's everything that would feed on the plants above ground, you mean, as well as the plants being... Um... Absolutely, absolutely. You know, when you have this diverse array of plants, it just creates many more homes and much more nutrient availability, primary and secondary compounds for all of the, uh, obviously, all the diverse array of species below ground. But then all the habitat that that creates for... Um, all kinds of insects, birds, mammals above ground is really important, as you well know, of course. But yeah. and then uh, what we were doing, and what you know, this paper that we published in Frontiers, the basic idea uh, revolves around this idea of plant diversity and how important that is then for the health of animals that eat a diverse array of plants, and we were focused on livestock in this particular case. And then we were making the point, gathering all the circumstantial evidence that we could, that um, when livestock eat a diverse array of plants, the phytochemicals in those plants become the meat and fat, become their bodies. And so when we eat animals that are raised on a phytochemically rich diet, that's a totally different kind of meat compared to meat that's coming, for instance, from a feedlot where animals are fed a really fairly depauperate diet by comparison. You know what that makes me think? I mean, I, I know where that paper is directed at looking at um, you know, what that, that, that then becomes as food for us. But while you're talking there, um, it just makes me think about our bodies. You know, if we're eating a phytochemically rich diet, actually, if we stand against uh, someone that's eating an industrially based diet or our former selves, if that's where, where we've been at, you know, that that body that, that we have is qualitatively very, very different. Absolutely the case. I think and it's those linkages that become so interesting. You know, when I was in uh, Austria, uh, one of the people that gave a talk was from Brazil. And uh, he was talking also about linkages and, and talking about phytochemistry. In his case, then, he was talking about insects that eat these, these different plant species that occur in Brazil, and then what that does for the bodies of the frogs that eat those insects that eat those plants. So it's really, it's really neat. And, you know, he was, as we are doing, taking a more in-depth kind of look, not, not, um, so, so he was really trying to, to quantify and, and illustrate that this isn't just, you know, me talking about this stuff. It, it really, it really is happening. And of course, that's, that's our goal in, in some of the research that, um, 
you know, I'm not directly involved with it. I, I'm helping people to to do it. I'm working with them on proposals related to it that you ask what, what we're up to nowadays. That's one of the tasks is helping to write papers and then helping to uh, helping people, these different groups to, to work on proposals to hopefully get funding. But the idea then is to... Um, is to compare the some of these markers in, for instance, inflammatory markers um, that uh, can be measured after people eat different kinds of meals, an industrial diet versus a diet that's rich in phytochemicals, as you're saying, or meat from animals that have eaten a diverse array of plants. And we're really excited about that about that research. Um, there's a a man in uh, in Idaho, in northern Idaho, named Glenn Elzinga, and his ranch is called Alder Spring Ranch, and he's got amazing operation of grazing, of uh, producing for what I like to call foraged finished um, animals, or you know conventionally that was referred to as grass fed beef, but. He's got pro several hundred species of plants on his landscapes. And what he does, he uses shepherding practices, much like Michel Meret and I talk, talked about in the book we co-edited co on uh, the art and science of shepherding, mm -hmm. uh, tapping the wisdom of French herders. Uh, he, he read that book and he thought, you know, this is perfect for, for our landscapes. And so he's, uh, it's amazing actually to see several hundred cattle um, on, these, on these vast rangelands with this diverse array of species and having these shepherds with them all day long. And they, they sleep up there in the mountains with the cattle. They have their camps set up and they're on horseback and the cattle are as tame. It was amazing, just so gentle, the horses, the cattle, the people working with them who are, by the way, young interns. They're, they're people either in college or just out of college. He has four positions available and probably 70, 80 people apply for those four positions. And uh, to go up there, uh, as we did, and spend a day talking and looking at how gentle those cattle are, looking at the diverse array of species, even in the few hours we either were there that they're ingesting, uh, and Glenn is one of the people involved in this study. So we want to say, okay, an animal that's um, been raised throughout its life as Glenn does on those landscapes, how does that, uh, how is that animal, how does that animal differ uh, when you look at, at um, the influence on our health compared to an animal that comes from a feedlot? Or compared to an animal that's just raised on a monoculture of grass. For instance, here it might be brome grass or orchard grass. And, you know, from the review of the literature that we did, it, it all points that, that it's going to be a totally different, um, totally different meat that comes from an animal like that, not only uh, in terms of the, the health benefits, which we'll be looking at, but we're thinking the flavor as well as the ability to satiate several people. And we, we 
you know, it'll be good to look at this experimentally, but several people like to say that when I eat meat that comes from glands, I don't have to eat much of that meat at all, and my body is very satisfied. So those are the kind of things that we want to look at in these, uh, with these researchers at Duke University who do the human nutrition studies in more clinical kinds of trials. Well, that reminds me of, um, what's the chap that wrote the book? about your work, the Dorito effect, Mark Shatner, is it? Yes, yes, Mark in Canada, uh-huh. Well, he, he, he did a big thing in that book about chicken, didn't he? How, how, how chicken used to be a different thing and, and how he sort of he went on this quest and, and found some real chicken from these old breed birds and how it made people cry when they tasted chicken like it used to. But, but I remember him saying that the, 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 the weird thing was that when he had this chicken dinner with his family or with friends, I forget who it was, they actually had some left over, in spite of the fact that one of the main points is that this chicken has hardly any meat on it, and yet this small amount of chicken that they ate, they, they, they'd had enough when they'd only had a, a, almost just a morsel, but it was so tasty and so satisfying. That's absolutely, that. that's the essence of the ideas. And I, I was actually visiting with Mark by phone yesterday. You know, he's been quite ill. Um, I want to say roughly a month ago, uh, he was diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis, which can, can just be horrific in terms of what it does to you. Uh, fortunately, he, he uh, got top-notch treatment very, very quickly. And so he's, he's well on the mend, but, uh, but we were visiting about some of these same things last night, uh, by phone. And that's the essence what you've captured. And it makes me think of a book that was written by a mountain man. Um, Ferris was his last name written back in the 1800s. And he was talking about bison. And he was saying that as bison, um, you know, as bison came out of the winter of the year, when times could be fairly lean, actually, and their diet restricted and began to eat a diverse array of different plant species, their body, uh, you know, their health and body composition changed greatly, of course, at that time. And he said it was amazing then um, to to uh, experience eating that bison. He said that the flavor was terrific. He said the ability to satiate was amazing, just as you're saying, you know, you didn't have to eat a lot. But the other thing he said that was really amazing to me, he said, contrary to any other kind of meat that we've ever eaten, we never grow tired of eating it. It was like, wow, that's pretty amazing to say that because we typically do get sick and tired of eating the same old thing. huh? No matter, no matter what, and that made me think of studies we did, and Mark and I were talking a great deal about this whole notion of satiety last night and some of the, the reigning theories in human nutrition that don't tend to acknowledge so much the nutritional wisdom of the body. They, they, they just never have wanted to go there. Instead, they, they uh, talk about this notion of sensory specific satiety and the fact that we eat a variety of foods because we get sick and tired of eating eating the same old things. Well, we did studies years ago um, where we were looking at livestock and and asking the question, if 
the more adequate the food is relative to the animal's needs, to what degree do they satiate, but also to what degree do they get sick and tired of eating that food? Does that make sense? <laughs> and the more adequate the food was relative to needs, the less that happened. It still happened some, uh, you know, and probably we weren't able to totally meet their needs, even trying to do, do it the way we were doing it. But for certain, if the food was deficient or excessive, they would <clears throat> they would really get quickly one, one, one meal of that and they were tired of it, you know. Whereas if food was really getting closer to meeting their needs, they would, they would stick with it for, for much over many more days. So that's what I was thinking of as I was reading about Ferris' account of those bison and him saying, you know, day after day we can eat this stuff and we relish it. We never get tired of eating it. And presumably it must have been giving them everything they needed then. It must have fitted that that part of the study you were just talking about. Exactly. That's, that's sure what comes to my mind um, in reading that. And I'm thinking not only for, of course, the energy that would be in the fat in that meat and then the, the amino acid profiles that would be such a nice match uh, for, for what a human body needs. But also, I'm thinking of this vast array of these uh, phytochemicals that, that would be in that meat uh, as the bison eat a diverse array of grasses, forbs, and shrubs, that all that would be, would be important. And of course, that's what, what people haven't really looked at uh, up to this point. And uh, that's what the researchers in Dukes, using some of these more modern techniques nowadays, metabolomics kind of analyses where they can really look at the, at the, at the phytochemical and biochemical profiles of foods in much better ways that, than we ever could historically. And then I think the, the, the trials with people become so important though to, to um, really assess the kind of things that we're talking about now. How, how much do you need to eat? How much do you like the flavor if you really need, if your body's in need of those things? And then what's it do for, for these, this oxidative stress and, uh, and inflammatory markers? These, you know, when you get into that literature on inflammation and chronic uh, systemic uh, inflammation, People really link that strongly with disease states uh, from cancer to heart disease to uh, this general notion of metabolic syndrome. And so we're very interested in, uh, in looking at, at inflammatory markers. You know, my interest in that started, um, I don't know how many years ago now, I, I want to say 10, maybe, maybe it was 15 I should know this, but when I read a paper for, out of Australia that was produced by a human research group in Australia, and what they were interested in was comparing uh, Wagyu cattle that had been finished in feedlots yeah. with kangaroos that were coming from native rangelands. And they were looking at doing, doing uh, kind of clinical trials with people that were fed one one type of meat or the other uh, on certain occasions. And then they it was what they referred to as a crossover design. So people that got Wagyu, you know, for a certain amount of time, then they get the kangaroo and vice versa. But those details really aside, the key thing was 
<clears throat> there was just no increase in inflammatory markers after they ate the kangaroo meat compared to the the wagyu meat. It, it was pretty stunning to see to look at that and to think about that. So those are the kind of things we're really interested in exploring. Uh, Linking in with, with people who are raising cattle in the way that Glenn Alzinga is and, and other folks like that on really diverse diets. And so we'll, we'll be looking at, you know, well, what are the diets of the animals and then what's that, how does that link with, with, with human responses? You're just trying to, to provide, you know, the, the observations like Mark uh, made on, on the chickens and uh, like... Uh, William Ferris made on the bison, and then the, the information on the kangaroos versus wagyus, it all sets the stage to really have more of a look at that. And I think, to me, it becomes relevant, too, given all that's happening with here in the U.S., uh, at least, um, with, with the fake meats, the faux meats, uh, that's really hit in a big way. And... Uh, you know, when you look at the ingredients that are in those, it's it's really, it's to me another processed food, but it's being argued very strongly as it's going to be um, great for human health and then great for environmental health as well, the carbon footprints and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. You have to wonder what's driving that, whether it's any kind of sincerity at all or whether it's just marketing. Right, right. I uh, it, it is it is interesting times in that sense, and and the uh, you know the amount of money that gets behind those, and and the groups that that uh, get behind funding and promoting those kind of of endeavors. Um, you know, there's there's a lot that's going on there, huh? That we may or may not want to try to try to get into, but. But that's that's certainly boy in the popular press over here that that's been huge. Just one article after another after another on on uh, on these these new kind of plant based plant based meats quote meats and uh, and really fairly positive press I would say here in this country relative to arguing it's going to be better for human health because meat is bad for us and then relative to environmental health because livestock have this huge carbon footprint and you know I, I certainly appreciate the emphasis on health and on environmental facets of that but I I have to say I wish there was more balanced coverage in the press over here more um, giving another side to the story related to the possible health benefits of modest amounts of meat in the diet, as well as diverse arrays of other wholesome foods, including uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. And I wish there was also more balanced coverage of <clears throat> the, the environmental footprints, because how animals are produced has a huge influence on the environmental footprint. Mm. And certainly, um, there's controversy over that. On the one hand, you have some folks that are arguing that feedlots are the best way if you're going to have cattle because they contend the carbon footprint is less. But if you, if you compare that with regenerative agriculture, which really is an attempt to 
get away from all of these inputs that we've used historically of one sort or another and start to reintegrate livestock back into, into farming practices, um, that footprint is much, much lower. And in, in uh, the book Drawdown, where they talk about 80 ways to, to help to uh, mitigate climate change by, by uh, reducing emissions and by sequestering greenhouse gas. When you look in the top 10 items that are there as ways to, to sequester greenhouse gas, they're all related to agriculture. And if, if, um, if we do proper kinds of management with, with agriculture, it becomes the number one way that we can actually reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions and fix 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 carbon back into into systems. So, but that part doesn't, at least here in the U.S., doesn't get so much talked about in the popular press. Actually, yeah, yeah. I don't know how is it there. What would you say for for um, if you feel comfortable to speak like for for situation uh, where you are Europe more generally? What what do you think? I would say the 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 best coverage of this issue, as as you can imagine, is probably is not in the popular press. But there's a there's a magazine called the Land Magazine. I don't don't know if you'd be aware of it. It's, it's a guy called Simon Fairley. Um, I know, I know Simon, know of Simon. Uh -huh. I haven't read that, though. I'll have to look. So, yeah, and of course he wrote, well, perhaps you know his book, Meet a Benign Extravagance, which, uh, which I do. is very uh, close to what you're saying. Um, so, but Simon is, is continuing to raise these issues and, and going to explore them in some depth, and as are other people in, in, the, in the publication The Land magazine but uh, there was coverage of this in in um, one of the Sunday magazines not long ago there was an article about beef specifically Simon was quoted as presenting this other perspective saying that actually in uh, in the case of you know land that can't be used for anything else all the same kind of arguments he's, he's saying that that uh, beef is a completely different entity it's a different it's a different thing, according to what the uh, the method of raising the the capitalism yeah. and so on. So that actually got into one of our um, national newspapers in in the Weekend magazine a few weeks ago. Um, Good. So I think you know if if people are paying attention, it's getting out. But the, but then again, that was a left wing national national newspaper. Um, mm -hmm. I think the I think the good thing, as I think we touched on last time, is is that people really are exploring these um, issues a lot now, and I, and I think it's even also the internet. You know, um, whenever people have anything wrong with them, these days before they go to the doctor, they've already read fifteen articles and watched seven YouTube videos. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good thing. So perhaps we you know we we shouldn't be too disheartened by what does or doesn't get into the press because you know if people want to know about these things they do go they do go searching but then i guess you've got all the bias involved in um what they might search for but uh anyway i i feel like that message is is beginning to get out fred um good. that's good that's good to know and you know probably that's true 
I would guess that's true here too. When I visit with with some of the folks um, here in the states that are more involved in in that end of things, they say, you know, it, it you have to dig more deeply. But that there's, you know, there are some there are some outlets that that are trying to get word out. I I guess I get disappointed in seeing some of the really the big name ones, and and in some interactions I've had, and I won't won't go into details with 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 some of them, like the Washington Post and the New York Times. Um, you know, they seem so set on that plant-based diets are the way to go, and uh, and not much interested then in in regenerative kind of of agricultural approaches to to this whole thing of integrating livestock back into systems, getting away from artificial fertilizers using animals uh, and animal agriculture as a part of way that we produce crops and so forth. Um, it seems like that's, there's just not so much interest uh, amongst, amongst some of those from, from my interactions of the last few months with some of the folks there. Well, I think, I think it's a, it's a sad thing actually, because, um, you know, on the whole, the, the, the plant-based thing is something that I'm sure you and I, would want to celebrate it's just a shame it's being put against uh i mean basically it's it's part of the solution isn't it for people and certainly if large numbers of the population on the planet decide not to eat any meat at all then i don't have a problem with that at all in fact simon rather cheekily says all the more for me <laughs> because you know there's not that much if if we go this way there's not going to be like the, the the vast supermarket aisles full of huge bits of meat that we can all stuff our faces with you know, it's all, it, it is, it is um, a high quality product that we can consume in moderation. And, and if there's a whole bunch of people don't want to consume any of it, then that, that settles the issue about who's going to get to eat it. But um, anyway, I think it's just a shame that two parts of the solution, um, as, 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 as I would see it, are ending up clashing. I just, and I think it's possibly, it's part of the problem that it, it is quite sort of, doctrinaire the plant-based thing because it's based about a very sort of emotional uh arguments that people have about um you know animal welfare and so on it's it's i mean i i i've, I've had this um um you you do feel like it is a clash of world views when you talk to somebody that is feels very very strongly about veganism they 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 think that the whole um thing with meat is 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 wicked you know so yes. that's not a very good starting point for a dialogue, is it? No, and it's true. It, it, I get that. I agree totally, Miles, with what you're saying. You know, I think diet um, is something that's a very individual decision, huh? And, and you certainly don't begrudge a person for whichever way they want to go, more toward the plant, more toward the animal, more toward the, the omnivore kind of approach. I. I certainly agree with with what you're saying on that, but it does seem like the worlds get pitted against one another. And when you read the the uh, scientific literature, some of it and some of the popular literature, you see how that happens because uh, things get laid out in a very um, exclusive kind of way. Huh? This is the way we have to go for human health and to save the planet. And there's <laughs> there's no room for alternatives. And so you try to raise you know, say, hey, wait, but the, it's it's nuanced, and uh, they're they're uh, grazing isn't grazing isn't grazing, meat isn't meat isn't meat, and uh, 
you know, if, if the whole pitch is plant-based and forget that, why nobody, uh, you know, some of the powerful groups don't want to listen to that. So I, I think you can certainly see how that, and then it takes on a real re religious fervor, does it not? I mean, really, diet is religion. I can absolutely see that. This is the, you know, this is the, this is the way to save humans and the planet, and people become entrenched on both sides, actually, huh? Well, that's one of the interesting things about the Land magazine, actually. Um, it'd be great if you actually. I'm sure the the articles are all on the on the website. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. I've written a, a, a short piece that I'm right now trying to get published, and I've been trying to go in some of these popular newspaper outlets, but maybe someplace like that would be a place to, to pitch it as well. I think Simon would love it. I, if, 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 you, if you don't have his email, just forward the thing to me, and I'll forward it to, um, to Simon. Okay, I, I well, will. Because I'm, I'm sure he'd, he'd love to have it. He's, he's, he's aware of your book, and I'm actually supposed to be writing a review of, of your book for, for The Land magazine. Um, I just haven't got around to doing oh, it. Oh, fabulous. That's wonderful, Miles. I'd, I'd, uh, that would be wonderful, I think, to have you do that. But yes, you know, it's not a long article. I've taken a long time to put it together, and... Uh, but it's only about fourteen hundred words. It's not a. It's not an extremely long article. But it's, uh, you know, I've been sharing it with some of the people that are really involved in issues like this, and they say, "Boy, we want to see this one go viral." And I say, "Well, yeah, but we've got to get it published, you know." And so they're suggesting different things. It's just a. It, what it is, it's nothing. It's nothing like new that I. It's just trying to. Uh, synthesize a whole bunch of ideas and put them in a really compact form, maybe too compact, you know, but um, for people who, that I've shared it with, they, they really, uh, they would like to see those, that package of pulling that together out there, you know, so that's encouraged me to keep trying and I haven't had any success yet, I'll tell you with with places like uh, I've had interesting interactions with some of the the folks, but it's clear that either they they have already they really bought into you know um, plant based diets, including faux meat, and uh, are the way for human health and to save the planet. So it's uh, it, it's interesting in that sense, all of it. So the article summarizes your views on meat being part of the solution and, and a critique of, of the plant-based stuff, or what, what's the... Yeah, it's, um, it really does. It, it deals with current issues, starting with the Eat Lancet report that came out in January, and then going to this latest um, this series of five papers that were just published in Annals of Internal Medicine. You probably know about those papers. Um, do you, Miles? Have you? I'm not sure that I do, no. Okay, that's that hit the news here like a bomb just, just a week ago, I want to say, if even it wasn't. But there were five papers published in the, the Annals of Internal Medicine that were saying that basically the when they reviewed the evidence using a certain technique they did, a fairly rigorous technique, they concluded that there's really no basis to argue that either red meat or processed meat is bad for human health. They just focused strictly on human health. 
not any of the other issues related to it. And that, like I say, that hit like an absolute bomb here. And uh, again, as we were talking, the groups that are kind of pitted against one another. And, uh, and here in the States, you know, I'm an outsider to the human nutrition area, actually. It wasn't what, what I focused on for my career, but I, in writing the book, I came to be familiar with a lot of the actors, you know, the key, key players in that. And so you can come to really anticipate then who the press is going to go to to talk to and who's going who's gonna to go crazy over an article like that, or over those five articles, you know, the different groups of people. And uh, I'll send you, Miles, a... Uh, I thought there was a really good op-ed written by Nina Teicholz in the LA Times, published just uh, day before yesterday, published there. She really did a nice job of reviewing um, the issues and of talking about the players and the biases and the funding sources behind the players. I'll send that to you after we get off the off the uh, off our Skype here today because it, it she did a nice job I have to say she really did a nice job of uh, covering uh, covering the issues and then uh, talking about some of the behind the scenes that a person might not be familiar with um, so I'll send that to you but it, it's uh, you know it, it really it really stirred the controversy and man did it ever hit the that that one hit the press in a big way with predictable kind of arguments on different sides, depending on, on which group was, was responding. But so this paper I wrote, <clears throat> you know, it, it talks about that. Then, then it goes into a lot of the nuance related to, you know, I think really important points, but, but a lot of the nuance that doesn't get covered related to how we raise meat. The way that the Land magazine has been covering this issue, one of the really interesting things they did, Fred, was um, to have basically a debate through articles between Simon and some others and uh, people speaking from a vegan perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was really interesting in the same publication because, you know, there's a lot of good permaculture people out there who are, who are vegan and they're, they're in the same kind of circles, but they don't agree with um, the conclusions that, that Simon and, and Jill and, and others have, have put across about animal husbandry being a, a kind of necessary to, to a whole landscape approach to, to, mm -hmm. to uh, agriculture and also that they've presented arguments about animal husbandry being a, a thing that promotes a kind of well-being for the animals, which doesn't necessarily happen in the wild. So there's been some interesting points, but then there's this, this uh, space for people to reply and it's gone back and forth, which is really, really healthy. And I think that's the kind of thing that's not happening um, more widely, but, it, but there's a really good example of it. If you go on, if you go on the Land Magazine website, you'd see um, I'm going to look it up so I'm, as soon as we finish. I really am. I, it's too bad I didn't know about that. And it, it sounds like a wonderful forum then. Uh, you know, another thing, I wrote another, <laughs> not to wear this out, but uh, these thoughts a bit, or these issues, uh, you know, you think about them quite a lot and you think about some implications. I did one other um, short piece where I was thinking about this whole the whole issue of feedlots and animal welfare and the what to me are very valid points that people make about the the welfare of animals and when animals are put in these uh, confinement feeding operations 
Um, and actually, in that Frontiers of Nutrition, in a paragraph there, we briefly reviewed that and said, you know, the feedlot situations are really violating the five freedoms of animals. If, you, if you're honest about it, they are. And some of our work on, you know, that when they're eating those really, really rich diets, they're probably sick a lot of the time. When we give them anti-emetic drugs that block nausea, they eat more of that stuff. So... You know, I can appreciate that. I really can. That that's probably was a path that, you know, I can understand where, why, why and how that got started. You know, here in the States, prior to World War II, animals were finished on pastures. You know, feedlots weren't a big deal. They, they really came on after World War II here in the U.S. And visiting with a friend in Argentina where they were so proud of their grass, you know, quote, grass-finished beef, and now they're going to feedlot systems. But, you know, I can see, I can see animal welfare issues related to that, absolutely. I can see um, issues, too, where people talk about the sentience of animals. I'm totally with that. I, you know, they, they're sentient beings. They're conscious. I think to argue that they, they don't have consciousness, that they aren't making decisions, aren't involved in their world, um, that just doesn't wor work for me. I, you know, as we study, and, and that goes from fruit, kind of like the Buddhists say, from fruit flies to humans. There, you know, there's a sentience there. So the article that I wrote starts out acknowledging and, and embracing that. Um, but it's saying, you know, how the Greeks used to, Aristotle and the Greeks used to view creatures mainly as machines, blah, blah, blah. And, and so it was fair enough to, to use them for human purposes, including eating them and so forth. Um, but then um, do a pivot there to talk about plant intelligence, plant consciousness and intelligence. And, and what to me is is amazingly interesting world of science that's being created about that. And so um, I talk about that and talk about all these senses that plants have. And just because they don't get up and move around like an animal does, doesn't mean that they aren't conscious and actually sentient as well, you know, that they're not experiencing these things. So it, that that was the fun part was to pivot and then talk about that and then go at the last to say, you know, what we have to realize is that um, all life is sacred and uh, we're members of nature's communities. What we do to them, we ultimately do to ourselves and realizing it's a kind of an irony of being uh, on Earth is that to for me to live someone, not something, someone is going to transform, huh? whether it's a plant or an animal. And it was my attempt to put down on paper. <laughs> um, and I talked about that a bit in Nourishment, but to, to really just have an article that focused and said, you know, we all try to, or maybe some of us, depending on our views, try to, to see things, you know, we see things in different ways. Some think it's not good to kill a, an animal, but we can eat plants. But but the realization that they're living too, they're someone too, uh, I think to me puts it on a, on a plane that, that goes back to a little bit what you were talking about, rather than pitting things against one another, acknowledging that 
for any of us to live, someone must must die. And then how do we raise that someone in ways that are have show love and respect for for all of the life on earth? To me, that's that's what I think is is the value. When I was on the ranch in Colorado for many years, um, you know, we we raised, of course, all kinds of crops. We had big gardens, always had big gardens. It was a, just the way of life. And we, we did butcher our own animals. And that really, um, that's not an easy thing, actually. You know, that's not an easy thing to do that. But I think realizing that when we're doing plants, we're kind of doing the same thing as well. Um, I don't know. We, we're... Um, I think it's really good to do those things because it put, puts a person in touch with that, huh? that, that uh, we're all, all transforming constantly and uh, for any of us to live so, something else. I, I don't like to say die so much as transforms. It's just transforming. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I can send you that one as well if you're interested to take a look. It's a short piece too. Yeah, I'd like to see it. I think it's a – well, it is just a fact that everything lives by – living other eating other living things you know this tiny amount of what we consume e.g salt um, is is not just the body of another living thing that's just that's what food is and uh right. yeah i think we have to we have to face that and um i think when we look at our food systems we i think we, we i think we just have to look a bit bigger than okay it is tough but we take another animal's life, and I've personally not uh, been involved in slaughtering animals. I've I've killed a couple of wild, a few wild animals, um, but you know that's obviously no no one can actually feel good about that. Um, at least you hope you hope no one would. Um, but I think I think what we've got to think of more is whether the the whole food system is benign. You know whether whether the overall effect on on the ecosystem and therefore all the different species in it including sentient beings like other animals and sentient beings like other people that the whole thing is more benign or less benign you know and, and yeah obviously the argument comes in with the with the the um the vegan thing is whether whether we're promoting um biodiversity by you know monocrops of whatever but, but i know there's there are vegan people that are, that are looking at biodynamic farming and all kinds of agroforestry things as well so you know i wouldn't want to pigeonhole anybody's argument but anyway that's that's the nice right. thing we have to we have to uh we have to make a benign food system rather than looking at the individual case of, of breaking a heart that an animal has to die well you know what about a habitat being lost or what about a habitat being recreated and Oh, I think so, so important what you're talking about. And you'll see in that little article I sent you, there's a paragraph. It's all really condensed. That's the thing. But it it makes that point. You know, while we, while we often say that um, growing plants, and, and I take the nuance that you, you're just alluding to there in what you said, but when we're growing plants for humans in, in large monocultures, um, you know, inadvertently, we are killing lots of animals, right, above ground and below ground by putting in a monoculture. The amount of habitat that's there 
as we started off here for creatures below ground because you've just got one species of plant, let alone for creatures above ground. Um, when you put vast, swath, vast swaths of land under monocultures, as we have here in, in parts of the U.S. in that sense, um, you, you have killed many, many, many species of creatures um, from insects to birds to mammals by the lack of by the lack of diversity so then that gets you thinking as i think you were alluding to well how you know what are ways that that we can raise raise the plants we do and the animals we do in ways that that help to 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 create diversity across landscapes and uh, and uh, so forth a uh, really important point i think and, and of course that you know a, a vegan diet that's not um, based 100% on organic is is also a bit of a conundrum because obviously non-organic conventional agriculture is killing a lot of um, of insects. So yeah, the herbicides and pesticides that we we use in such great quantities, huh? Have, uh, and as you well know, and we both, as I was working on nourishment, man, what's hap happened with uh, with insect populations, with uh, with birds, there's a report just came out here recently on Canada and the U.S. talking about the the huge reductions in populations. That's what what seems to what's being talked about so much nowadays. Is that, okay, we we know about extinction, and certainly the white rhino just went extinct, and that's we, we don't want those kind of things to happen if we can prevent it at all, but. What I saw the people writing about so much is what's not being acknowledged are the huge <clears throat> declines in populations that presage those kind of things happening. And uh, yeah, it's the coral reefs, on and on and on. We, we, we know that we're, yeah, it's probably a fact that we're participating in the sixth mass extinction. And then the question is, well, what can each of us do? And I know you're certainly thinking and involved and many of us are in you know whatever we could do from our little place where we actually live to to then thinking about food systems and how they they influence that i just think the the <clears throat> the way that you um pull together the different layers of this is so important because you make the link between biodiversity uh and its effects on our bodies and, and biodiversity um, and its effects on the landscape. What I mean is our food system being biodiverse or not, you know, it's, that is the kind of interface, the, the human health impact of us eating lots of different things, it turns out has this amazing effect on, on the landscape. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly just thinking, well, if I analyze my diet and I think, okay, there's a lot of pasta coming in my mouth. <laughs> and that pasta means that most of what ends up in my belly is just wheat. And it's not even just wheat. It's, it's wheat that's been selectively bred to be just starch because even that wild grass was, was more nutritionally diverse, the, the, the original wild wheat. And that originally wild wheat was living in, a, in, in, a, in an ecosystem with other things so there was diversity there so there was there's a relationship a direct relationship between the the, the sort of uh, the effect of the monoculture on 
the land and, and, and ecology and biodiversity and the effect of the monoculture on our bodies. And, and I just think that's, that is such an important link that's, that, that you're making and that I'm also working with. Personally, as well as professionally, you know, I'm trying to think about that myself. I eat that pasta. There's a knock-on effect in me and outside me every time I do that, you know. I think that's so critical, Miles. I really do. And I don't know if I capture that or not, but I feel that way so much. And my wife and I here, if you could see our little place, we only have an acre and a half where we live here in Innocent. We have really tried to think about those things, um, for all the reasons that, that you're saying, and of course, um, you know, I, I was, 50 years ago, I was in a young student in wildlife biology, in a program called wildlife biology, you know, and ecology was a young discipline then, but I remember them saying, you know, biodiversity is so important, diversity is so important, and I, I understood the words then, I mean, it Okay, it made sense, but as I've gone over the years, it just, it just, they really, they, they were really on to, to uh, that was really so important, you know, I, I just, and I think of all the work, uh, the research we did over the years, it all, it all supported, supported that, and uh, so here our little place, we really, we have tried to encourage all the native species that would live here rather than just planting a monoculture of of a grass we have a little bit of lawn around I'm going to send you a picture <laughs> we have a little bit of grass that was planted before we came here we've kept that but we don't use and this is you know it sounds like you're trying to take some higher ground i'm not i'm just trying to relate to it but we don't use any pesticides or herbicides our lawn has a, a lot of clover in it so it's fixing nitrogen it's green as can be but we don't put any fertilizer on it we don't put any anything on it then we've planted all these native native berry producing shrubs around the perimeter of the place and the berries they produce that we can pick each and then we have it's a rock pile. Our, we're on, a, on, an, uh, on an alluvial glacial rock. It's just rock. So we brought in some soil from a guy that we knew, and we created these deep beds where we have vegetable, herbal, and medicinal gardens going. And uh, it, it's, you know, it gets you thinking. Um, you know, very few of us are, are actually farmers or ranchers, as it would be said here in the U.S., but if we own a piece of ground, we can all be little farmers and ranchers. Do you know what I mean? We could all, um, and I know the the argument to that nowadays is everybody's so busy, busy, busy. Um, and that's, you know, that's a kind of a downside of the society we live in. But I just see so much, so much value in getting a person's hands in the soil. And when you look at the, you know, we occasionally we'll have neighbors come over and they'll look around with us and we, we just talk about and you know in the spring there's certain combinations of grasses and forbs that are flowering and stuff from larkspur to local wheat to flock flax flocks and flax and then as you go into the summer other ones are going and then into the fall it's beautiful to see how the plant species change 
and the diversity that's there, you know, uh, the diversity of different plant species. I, I haven't done a list, but we've got many, many species of grasses and forbs and shrubs as well that come on. And all that then creates habitat for, for a bunch of for, for, for creatures. Next year, we're going to get some bees and some chickens on the place. And, uh, but we could each be, and I think that a lot. I was, Sue and I, my wife Sue and I were visiting with one of our old friends from the days we were on the ranch in Colorado. She's in her late 80s now. And we'll sometimes get talking about these things and about the traditions that people brought here to the U.S. from, from the countries in Europe when they came over. And they, they did so much that way. They all had <clears throat> on their little pieces of ground, they grew big, beautiful gardens. They had chickens. They often had a hog and stuff, you know. They were still linked in really neat ways, but that's gone now. You go to those little communities, all of that's gone. We also got talking on another topic you and I, I think probably explored in that first, our first conversation. She was saying, you know, I had my, my daughter went out of town uh, the other day and she brought me home a box of Jonathan apples. And we were saying, oh man, we love those Jonathan apples and you can't get them anymore. And we started talking about the varieties that are grown now. And it, when you were talking about wheat, I was thinking so much that I, I love apples, but anymore I don't find much that I like the apple varieties that are there. They're so sweet. They lack, and we, neither, neither Sue nor I, nor Wilma, Wilma's from Austria originally. She's the old farm lady I'm talking about. None of us are food tasters, so we don't know the vocabulary, but we know that the richness of flavor and the tartness and the, you know, the different phytochemical characteristics that those that the, the transparent apples that we were talking about that used to be common, the Jonathan apples and some of the other varieties, it's gone. And, and you think, well, there's, there's a change in, in the, what we've selected for in the sense that you're talking. And then I was telling Wilma about uh, when we were doing work years ago on some fruit orchards in Washington state it's at the time we were learning about feedback and we how you could train animals to avoid eating things you didn't want them to eat. And these these people wanted sheep in their orchards. They wanted them foraging in their orchards, uh, putting urine and feces in their orchards. And so we were up there working with them, trying to uh, see if we could train the sheep not to eat the trees, but to eat all the rest of the stuff. But what struck me more than anything was talking with those people about how over the 50 years they'd been involved in fruit production, how varieties had changed, how the size of the trees had changed, how the varieties of fruits had changed. And then they summed it up and they said, you know, so this is what we sell you, but this is not what we eat. Come here to the back of the orchard and we'll show you what we eat. And what did they eat? They kept those old varieties. That's what they were eating. You know, it's like, well, that sums it all up. And they said, now try this plum and now try this apple. And it's like, Oh, it's a totally different eating experience. It's like the chicken that Mark talked about, right, in his book. To me, it's those same things. And people know that if they lived long enough to have the experience, like Wilma or people our age, um, 
You know, and then like the point Mark Mark makes in in the Dorito effect that I think is so important. At the same time, we were selecting for varieties that were really lacking in flavor, and just as we all know, and Wilma said it, like we all say it, they look great, but they don't have any taste to them whatsoever. They just look good. The same time we were doing that, then all these ultra processed foods were coming on the market and and with all their bells and lights and whistles and ways that they devised to get flavors linked with immediate feedback from from the high energy, very, very rapidly uh, digested energy in those that really set up a, a change in diet for, for folks that now, um, as we as we've talked, it, really needs to be a shift back toward wholesome foods that have great flavors because they are rich in phytochemicals and biochemicals, whether you're a plant eater or an animal eater or a combination of those. I, I think that that matters so much. And it, it was fun. It's just fun to talk to some of those old people because they don't know the science and they honestly probably couldn't care less about the science, but they, they know they know the topic inside and out from their personal experience of all of that, Tom. Yeah. Just going back to, 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 to your description of those foods just now, I was just hanging on to a thought. The list of ingredients on some of those processed foods, here are we talking about we want our foods to be um, biochemically rich, but it just occurred to me that that long list of E-numbers and, and, and so on on that thing, I said, well, actually, <laughs> there is chemical diversity in there. <laughs> But it's not the one we want <laughs> because none of those chemicals are, are, are doing the magic that, that, that we're talking about or that you know far more about than I do. Uh, the the, the uh, bioactive compounds and all the, the ways they interact with the complexity of our physiology and, and, and also they, uh, they're, they're making these links with, with the land, as you say. Unfortunately, all of those long list of chemicals in the processed foods are just there to fool us into, into um, eating more right. Yeah. The way they are chemically chemically rich, but it's not necessarily things you want to put into your body. And you know, Miles, so I spent a lot of time studying all these compounds in plants and working with chemists that knew far more than I did about all this stuff. But I tell you anymore, I just um, kind of let that go in this sense. There's so many compounds in these plants and they're interacting with one another and then they're interacting with cells in ways that are amazingly complex. And so um, I just kind of leave it to, and then a miracle happens, you know, in ways. And certainly people are studying that. And this conference I went to, really neat kind of stuff. But I'll tell you what, there was one presentation there by a guy named Guido Pauli from University of Chicago. And uh, I, I connected with him later in the day and just told him, you know, your, fa your talk I thought was fabulous because he was really boring in on this business of, <clears throat> of complexity and ha what how it becomes absolutely overwhelming. So we had a fabulous talk and now we're corresponding in these really long in-depth notes. And he sent me a paper they published that, that's because, you know, he's in a pharmacy, he's in a department of pharmacy. So they, they're dealing, they're trying to find what's, what's cures for different things, right? But he's standing up in front of this big audience and he's saying these silver bullets and all this stuff, you know, if we're honest, it doesn't work. And it was it was just 
those talks are going to be posted. It was a 30-minute talk, and I need to get that from Guido and share it because it was just like, to me, he hit the nail on the head over and over again. And I told him, you know, 25 years ago, I kind of came to that conclusion. I was writing papers like The Physics of Foraging and saying we need to move away from Newton. Not that Newton wasn't fabulous, but we need to think more in quantum and relativistic senses about all of this stuff. And uh, so we've been having a great a great back and forth. And we're maybe going to write some science paper that, but the one he wrote, he and his group wrote, it's a very, very in-depth, long paper, but it's just, um, it's written for, for people that would be natural products, chemists, pharmacists, people who are really uh, doing the drug exploration kind of stuff. And uh, boy, did he hit nails on the head about the, the approaches and that probably most of what we, we do in that sense is really leading nowhere, actually. It was, was a bottom line, but he said it in such eloquent ways. <laughs> And nobody, I don't know if it, I don't know if it sunk in, because later when you're talking, he said probably 80 to 90% of the posters and the, the work that's being done fits into this category, and he had an acronym for it that that he said is going nowhere, you know, and uh, it was, that's long-winded, but it's just making this point that when you get tens of thousands of these compounds in your diet through eating a diverse array of, of plant, and animals that are eating diverse array of plants, you know, it becomes kind of, in one way, overwhelming. It's, that's what Guido and I were talking, it's beyond what reductionist science, where you pick a variable and you test it. I mean, how do you do higher order interactions when you've got 10,000 compounds at a minimum, probably? Strawberry has 5,000 volatiles, I've read, out of some of the work that, that people, people were, were doing. It becomes... It becomes overwhelming, um, but certainly the research like this group that met in Innsbruck is doing points in those directions of of the importance of those and uh, of all this all these different compounds like we talk about. Huh? But without, I, I don't even feel a need to try to get into specifics anymore on that because it's kind of um, well. And he was using those examples of the specific kind of resveratrol or this, you know, we always want to identify a compound and say, at least here in the U.S., say this, this is the active ingredient. Well, it's far, far, far more, more complex than that. And that's what he did such a nice job of, from a very, very hardcore science standpoint of, of articulating there at that conference. It was, uh, that was worth the whole trip just to hear Guido's talk for me and to, and to say, wow, this is so cool that you that you got there in your thinking, you know, that you that you went there and that you said that to this whole audience, you know. I think it's 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 um, it's kind of like. We reached we reached the position of seeing it is the complexity, it is it is the the diversity and then the the wonder of, of the linkages within that whole diverse array of of, of different um, organisms and different compounds and so on. Well, I guess once we've reached that conclusion, it sounds like once you reach that conclusion, you just thought, well, actually, the specifics don't matter. That if if we if we go for 
diversity, if we go for complexity, we know that that is actually the, the fuel that's going to make the, this thing flourish. It's not the one thing that's going to make it flourish. It's the many things and the interrelatedness of the many things. Um, but I think it's fun that the honestly, the, that's absolutely where I've been, where yeah. I've been, where where I've ended up because it's uh, you know he went down that path and you know when when reading Guido's paper, he's talking about bioassays, which we did a lot of, and they're a way to try to to <clears throat> working with with chemists to to look at different fractions. You know, you use different extracts to extract different kinds of compounds in plants and then you work your way through all that stuff endlessly and in our case we were trying to see you know well, what is it that's deterring animals from eating plant x or y or z or whatever it was and so i could relate they were their 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 objective of course is 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 some kind of drugs let's say for for to help humans ours was to try to understand the relationships between the plants and their defenses and the animals and what are the signals but it was the it's the same approaches and the same ideas and uh, and then realizing um, yeah just coming to the the realization that you expressed really nicely just just now you know that you finally when it comes to all these things you realize that uh, and I think it wasn't a waste. Uh, of course, what else would you say? Huh? <laughs> I think it, it's not a waste that w we've gone down those paths because to me, it's re revelatory then. It, it helps you to see, ah, it's not about the individual compounds and stuff. It's about just what you talked about. It's about this tremendous amount of diversity. And then that's where Guido and I were talking about, okay, so what's the approach then what's the way and you know it got me thinking about what i was reading years ago on quantum physics and uh, you know books that people had written about that and 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 their discussions about when when people first started into this whole quantum world it was so different to whatever they they had known before and so different to Newtonian approaches, linear deterministic approaches to things that that they just kept hitting a wall, hitting a wall, hitting a wall. And they go away dumbfounded, you know, what we do until they thought they came with a totally different way of thinking about how you have to think about the universe. I, I, that's what Guido and I were talking. Well, maybe we should try to write a paper like that that says that's probably where we are right now with all this. And it would relate whether you're talking about food or, or medicine or whatever it was. Does that make some sense? It, it just pops questions up in my head uh, without you going into more depth about the, the, the possibilities that you're envisaging with how this quantum view would. Uh, yeah, that's, that's of course, what would yeah. be the, the, the fun part of, it, of writing this paper is to really try to, to and yesterday, and he invited me to this, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I couldn't go there. They were having a small roundtable to talk about some of these. To talk about some of these things, they had some people from NIH, uh, our NIH here, National Institute of Health. A guy was coming, and uh, he said, "Well, maybe you could join us by Skype and just talk a little bit." It, it didn't work out, so. I'm curious to to get in touch with Guido and see how that meeting went. And then, uh, you know, I mean, it it took a lot of a lot of years for those quantum guys to to, 
to rethink that whole way of of doing it and uh you know not to be pretentious or anything else because we wouldn't i'm sure well maybe guido would I, for me no but uh, but to at least write something that says we we need to start thinking maybe in like the quantum we pull all this brain power together and think because these approaches uh, that we've used historically uh, aren't up to the task. The the traditional ways of science aren't up to this task. I did get into a bit of that literature when I was writing Nourishment, actually, and I enjoyed it a lot. It was coming out of the phar- pharmacological literature, and they were, they were, I remember one lady was talking about this herbal guy that she knew that had 12 different plants he'd give to people with cancer. And then she started talking about, okay, these 12 different plants each have, you know, 10,000 compounds or whatever it was. And say, okay, so then you multiply that times 12, you start to look at the interaction. She, she was starting to think about this, you know, we're dealing with incredible complexity here. And so it would be fun to get a paper out there Whoever does it, I, Guido and I were talking that, but it would be fun to get that out there because I think it's a, it's really a timely conversation, and then it relates totally to what you were saying about it's it's not just the compounds in plants for human health; it has to do with the linkages in the entire system, huh? Uh, with the linkages that that obviously, if if it's true, and I I believe it all that's being written about the crashes of populations and us participating in the sixth mass extinction, it seems like it's it's is probably way past time to be to be really heeding all of that and thinking about can we mend these broken linkages and how how can we all go about doing that? I think is really an urgent urgent thing. I think it's I think it's the only thing about well I mean I would you know, <laughs> amen uh well it in in a sense it's not the only thing what 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 we've got to do I mean we we've, we've got massive uh, protests on the streets in London um this week and next week um I know it's not making it into the press uh, or onto the news in 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 your country but there are people occupying the streets demanding that our politicians do something about climate change so there is that side to it. We do have to uh, get the, the 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 destruction to stop. We have to get the things which are continuing to destroy these linkages and to disrupt the climate in such a way that it's 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 going to wipe things out that way as well. So I mean, it, it's in that sense, it's not the only thing. We've we've got to put the brake on this monstrosity that's that's raging around the earth and 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 smashing it all up. But in terms of like solutions. So that's the negative thing. We've got to stop that. But in terms of solutions, I think there's nothing else to do but look at those linkages. I'm so with you, Miles, on that, obviously. And and in just what you said, too, the, the whole climate issue is linked linked in with, with that as well, huh? It's 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 all got so, so linked. It makes me think, and I'll send you this, too. There's a, there's a uh, conference going to be held in New Zealand in Christchurch, in December of twenty uh, of twenty twenty, and uh, helping helping those guys on organizing that, and there'll be some papers in that, and we a couple of us are are working on a paper, and we, we just submitted the abstract, but it's vi- 
very much related to what to what you just said. I'll, I'll shoot that short abstract to you as well, just to take a look. It has that. It can try. It really tries to capture in nice wording that the flavor of that and the urgency of that. The the urgency of 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 all of that. That'd be lovely. And and also that that talk that you said about that you said would be online with with your friend. We can put that underneath the podcast so that people listening to this can can watch that. Um, and what I'll, what I'll do, um, Miles, I'll send a note to Guido and ask him how that went yesterday, and I'll ask him if he's got if he's got the link yet to to his particular talk to share with you because it really was uh, it, it really uh, complements everything that we talked about here today, you and I, and in a, in a nice thirty minute summary, you know, that's great. And I'm 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 fascinated to uh, to to see what comes out of it. If you if you're not able to, you know, map out anything of, of what I mean is you, you you're saying that the quantum thing could be applied to how we're thinking about these things that like the relationship of people to land presumably and the relationship of diet to health. Um, I I. I haven't really read much into to quantum stuff, um, and so that sounds fascinating, fascinating to me. Like that, that, that those 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 kind of thoughts and those areas of knowledge could inform our process of of, of working with these linkages. That that sounds fascinating. I think it is, uh, Miles, and I, I'll tell you. <clears throat> My exposure came um, many years ago when I read this book, The Tao of Physics by Friedrich Capra. I know, I've read that. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, he was talking about that over and over again when those quantum guys were, and that was my first exposure. It's like, wow. And now I th that's what I still think back to that. And I think, you know, that's kind of where we are now with this incredible complexity. And whatever we do, if we want to continue to try to, to uh, study some of the things like Guido was talking about, like you get into in human nutrition, then there needs to be a different approach. I think clearly to me, ecology has nailed it in terms of relationships and interrelationships and, uh, and those kind of things. But, you know, thinking more from this this standpoint of the health of a human or any creature if people want to continue to study it and that was kind of his point is searching for silver bullets is is not the way and that's the point we made in that frontiers in nutrition article too is that you know you get looking at omega-3s and okay they're supposed to be wonderful for all this stuff but when you just focus on them and you supplement them you don't see any effect and we were arguing, you know, it's the synergies amongst all these things. And boy, Guido's long letter back to me, I should share, I don't want to bear, but his long letter back to me after the conference, he, he, he read the Frontiers article and he was just underscoring those points in really powerful ways from his knowledge standpoint and base. Maybe I will send that because you don't have to read any of that, but it'll give you the flavor of what we're starting to think about and talk about. Yeah, oh, this sounds fantastic stuff. Well, Miles, I want to keep you in the loop on all this, actually, because it's your knowledge base and 
energy and all that is so related to all of this. I think it's it's synergies amongst us, all of us too, right? I mean, that's what does all this stuff. Yeah. I, when I think back to the research we did, and uh, I get <clears throat> a lot of credit for that, but I always say, you know, there are 75 people, so many people of us all working together. That's what did that. It had nothing to do with, with me. It's the synergies. Huh? And boy, those physicists talk about that too, how they'd get together and they'd brainstorm and they'd think and they'd think till, till their brains were mush, long nights. And then, then they'd sleep, and that you know, it it takes it takes a village, a big village, all of us thinking together, working together. I think that's what's what's really key on on any breakthroughs and developments, including this stuff like Guido and I were talking about. You know, many minds uh, pondering these things. Well, yeah, and also the the what what I'm seeking to do with the podcast. Um, and if nothing else, I'm at least having good conversations. <laughs> so even if I'm not achieving what I want to do with the podcast, but, but, but the idea is, is, um, you know, that these kind of conversations can be listened in on by lots of people. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to share your conversation with, with, with Greta or with me. So now I'm listening in on your conversation with him. I just think a lot of that is, is very powerful and, and, uh, it's, it's, um, it's made possible by these mediums that that we have. I mean, I, I listen to podcasts when I'm cooking and various other things, and 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 you just realise, well, we couldn't have done that before. So it, th this is another way to create linkages, I I guess, not not personal linkages, but in terms of the ideas, um, making contact with more people's thinking and and, and experience. So yeah. So. Oh, absolutely, and I absolutely appreciate what you're doing in that sense, um, Miles. And I, I understand that of why you're doing that, and very much appreciate it. I couldn't agree more. I think that's it's the way. How kind of global conversations that people we can enter into now, huh? That would have never been possible before, and so urgent now because it yeah. it is what we're we're one peoples on one globe. Yeah. And all this nationalistic kind of stuff and so forth. It's xenophobic kind of thoughts and nationalistic kind of thought. We we better be pulling together as as a peoples and yeah. link as a peoples link to mother to our mother the earth. Yeah. It's um, you'll see that flavor in this abstract I send you. <laughs> it's it's totally in there. Okay. Well, lovely, lovely, lovely to talk to you. And um, yeah, we'll. We'll carry on. Absolutely, Maz, and we'll look forward to staying in touch. And probably, I'm thinking with some of what we've discussed in a little bit closer touch, even on on uh, on some of these. Uh, I'm just thinking some things that I, I didn't, but uh, on these these papers and uh, some of these ideas, I, I would like to stay in closer touch with you and and share ideas, even if. We, well, then we can do it by by Skype. Doesn't have to be by podcast, but just by by, by talking, and we can do it by correspondence. So I'd like to do that, Miles. We're on the same page so much, and uh, you know, being able to draw on your knowledge base as part of this, I think. Uh, and like we're saying, it's about relationships, huh? Interactions, relationships, synergies that come out of that. So I, I would like to do that. Yeah, I'm definitely up for that.
That's great. Okay, sounds good. Well, listen, you have a good evening. You have a good day. Okay, I will. Take care, Miles. Cheers, Fred. Okay, thanks for joining us for this week's Worldwide Podcast. Um, yeah, and you know, do get in touch if you have any comments or suggestions or reflections on the on the content of this or any other um, episode. And as we said before, we we appreciate it if you can leave us reviews and just tell other people. And um, you know, if you find us helpful, just um, spread the word so we can get more people engaging with what we're um, outputting here. Okay, so that's that's it for this week. Thank you.